Well, good morning. Uh, go ahead, take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. We are going to be finishing up chapter 1 this morning, uh, starting in verse 24, and we'll read the first five verses of chapter 2, uh, though, as you will see. Uh, and so I'll go ahead and tell you now, we are going to spend a lot of time, and when we read the text, you will understand why, uh, in the first couple of verses, verses about 24 through 26, 27, uh, the vast majority of our time will be spent there this morning because it is thick, um, and Paul is telling us. Uh, just some deep theological truths that we need to understand. Uh, so go ahead, turn there. You are going to want to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen, uh, but we would also love to give you one. And so if you don't have a Bible at all, there are stacks of Bibles around the church in the lobby. Uh, you can take one of those. There's notebooks uh, to take notes in, which is a really novel thought. Uh, also out there with those Bibles, you can take those. That's our free gift to you. Uh, we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. I want to start out this morning by just telling you, uh, really relaying something to you that I've learned in my life. And most of the time when we think about life, uh, we tend to think in highs and lows, uh, mountaintops and valleys. And these are not bad ways to describe seasons of life. They, they can kind of help us think through kind of the majority thought of a season. And so I feel like I'm in a mountaintop type of season right now where there's a period of time where things feel pretty good. Uh, and then there's times in life where there are valleys and things feel difficult. They feel painful maybe. The overarching theme of that season in life is, is pain and suffering, uh, difficulty in our lives. Uh, but the thing that I've learned is, is that maybe when we think about highs and we think about lows, uh, and we tend to think about seasons of life where things are good and where things are bad, what happens in the highs and the lows is that we have this tendency to, to really focus in on self and what is good and what is bad. And so when you're in the high, you have this emotion of, man, things are good, and the focus is set on what is good. So your primary emotion is joy, happiness, because things circumstantially are going well for you. But then your secondary emotion in the high is going to be fear, because you're going to fear losing what is bringing you joy. The circumstance in your life that you know won't last forever, and so you will be motivated by what is giving you joy, your circumstance, and you will be full of anxiety and fear secondarily because you're, you're only focused on the circumstance that's bringing you joy. When you're in the valley, your primary emotion is fear and anxiety, because you're experiencing something that is causing pain and your secondary emotion is a passion and desire to get out of what is causing pain and to pursue joy. So you're really feeling the same two emotions. You're hyper-focused on joy and fear through those highs and those lows. And we tend to really hone in and get very self-centered on what is good and what is bad when we are in those moments. It is very difficult to see a blessing in the valley and to have compassion in, on those in the valley when you are in a time of blessing. But what I've learned over time is that 
We can't really focus on our circumstances and the highs and the lows, the mountains and the valleys. And when we really investigate our hearts, what we begin to discover is that life is more like two tracks that are running parallel at all times, like two train tracks, if you will, running parallel, not necessarily mountains and valleys, but that two train tracks that are going at the same pace at the same time all the time, and we might feel a little bit more blessing on the top track at times, but at the same time, there's always suffering and pain happening. That both suffering and pain, joy and gladness are always happening in unison. And if we can begin to see life as two tracks rather than mountaintops and valleys, then we can begin to live in the kingdom of God, experience the joy that we have in God alone, even in the midst of the brokenness of the world. When we are in the valley, we will always be able to see the blessing. And when we are experiencing God and his kingdom rather than our circumstance defining goodness, then we will always be able to see the sorrow of a broken world and bring the kingdom of God into it. This is how our emotion, our truth, our understanding, our identity begins to take shape, not based on our circumstances, but based on who we are in our creator. Not just focused on the high or just focused on the low, but focused on his kingdom in the brokenness of the world we live in. This is what Paul begins to show us in this text this morning, that in every season of life, there is suffering and there is blessing. There is need and there is provision. There's weeping and there's laughter. There's heartbreak and there's rejoicing. There's frustration and there's thanksgiving. And when we have an understanding of the gospel, that we are living in this life in a broken and sinful world as we have rebelled against God, our creator, who we were created in to have community and to have life and have joy and giving him glory and, 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 and worshiping him with all things and through all things, not worshiping things to get our joy and our circumstances determining how we feel and how we define ourselves, but being defined in him and our joy coming because of who we are in him into all things. When we lose sight of that because we rebelled, God came and lived for us the life that we could not live. He died to pay the penalty of our sin, our rebellion, and he rose from the grave to defeat sin, all that is defeating us, so that we might place our faith in his work for us and by his grace be saved. And when we begin to understand that gospel identity that we have, that what Christ has done for us defines us, that who we are in him defines who we are, not our circumstances, not our emotions, not our highs and lows, but we can live in the reality of his glory and his kingdom through all things in life. This is where we begin to have a deeper understanding of our pain and a joy that can't be added to on the mountaintops or taken away from in the valleys. The gospel truth opens our eyes to the identity of the kingdom of God while walking in the brokenness of the world. We are able to see both tracks at all times. And this means some things for us in life. And so when we get to what Paul is talking about here in this text, listen, it's it's a hard text. 
It really is difficult. And that's why we're going to focus on the first couple of verses of it. But Paul wants to show us this truth. And he's going to use his life as the example. Uh, A lot of times, as we've talked about in this, in this uh, book, in the book of Colossians, uh, chapters 1 and 2 are very deep theologically. Because Paul wants us to understand who God is and who we are in him before he ever tells us what to do. He wants us to understand our identity before our activity. That out of the heart, our actions would flow. And so he gets really deep theologically saying, this is who God is, and this is who you are in him by his grace. And then in chapters three and four, he actually goes, this is really practical. Here's how this plays out in your life. And I love how Paul lays it out this way, because not only in the words of scripture is Paul telling us the gospel, but he's also telling us the gospel in the structure of his letter. The Bible is such a beautiful book that that not only its words, but its actual structure and the fact that it's all linked together reveals itself to be living and active. And out of all of it, we find life and meaning and purpose and joy. And certainly in the way that Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossian, the Colossi, and to us today, we see this as a reality as well. But he's just going to lay his life out. He's going to use himself as an example. And so what I need us to know is, though this text and though chapters 1 and 2 are deep in theology, it's also personal. I hear something a lot as I'm talking with people as a pastor because people will often ask theological questions. They're they're struggling with truths of Scripture and how to really wrestle with the the truths of Scripture and the culture and the cultural truths that we live in and how you reconcile those two things together and do I believe the Word of God or do I believe the culture we live in and it's emotional and it's personal. And so one of the things that I get all the time is after telling someone the truth of Scripture and just kind of saying this is what God's Word says about this and trying to do so very compassionately and very lovingly because I struggle with things in Scripture as well. I've had to wrestle with things. There are certainly things in Scripture I wish God did not say or He said differently because it would make life a whole lot easier, but we have to come to the reality that this is the truth, and in it alone, when we, when we are the ones that need to bend, we actually find a joy in God. But a lot of times I'll be laying out this truth in a very loving, as loving a way as I possibly can. And someone will look back at me and say, well, well, that's theology, but this is personal for me. I'm going through this situation. I'm struggling with this. I'm, I'm, I'm facing this in this relationship. And what Paul says here is, not only am I getting deep theologically in the truths of God, but it is personal. That all theology is applied in the personhood of each of us. That everything we face is not divorced of the truth of God, but when we live out our lives in the truth of God, that is where we get understanding. That is where truth becomes a reality and joy and the thrill of life that we are created and designed to live in can come alive. So in Paul's structure, he's revealing the gospel to us, and we've discussed how really the foundational truth of the book of Colossians is this, and I'll put the gospel into a mathematical equation. I don't know if you knew that the gospel could be summed up in a mathematical equation or not, but this is for you math nerds. You ready? Here we go. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. 
And we've said that this makes who Jesus is and what we do with him in our lives the most important decision that we will ever make. Because listen, everything is created by him, everything is for him, everything is to him. He has designed each of us in this world and he determines how we should live and what freedom looks like and what truth we are designed and created to walk in. And here's what I need you to know this morning. It is what you do with him, the most important decision you will ever make because if we do not know whose the story is and who's in charge of the story, then we will never know the character that we are to become. And many of us in this life are wondering who we should be and what we should put worth in and what we should find value in and what our purpose is and what our meaning is. And what Paul and I am telling you this morning is, if we do not know God as the creator, sustainer, savior of all of life and all of eternity and how he has designed and created us to be, and we do not surrender to his reality and not our own passions and appetites, then you will never never know who you really are. You will never know the character that you are to become because it is his story. This is his world, his creation. And God alone brings understanding to our lives. But the beauty of that is we don't have to figure it out. See, we spend so much of our time in pursuit of things that we do not have and things that we are not. But when we understand who God is, we don't have to figure out who we are supposed to be. We don't have to work religiously really hard to achieve something that we don't already have given to us by grace. See, a lot of times we think, and this is what Paul has been telling us, and this is what he's setting up to get to this first sentence in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 24. If we don't understand this, we, we definitely can't get to what he is saying there, because this is what he has been telling us. A lot of times we think we have to determine who we're going to be and who we are. This is the culture that we live in. We have to decide. And if we do so outside of God, we're following our passions, our appetites, our desires, and we think that we have to pursue our desires enough, passionately enough, surrender to self enough, that at the end of the tunnel, there's some type of joy. There's some type of meaning. There's some kind of purpose in it all. There's some type of fulfillment. In our whole lives, we try really hard to find that fulfillment and that joy and that purpose and that meaning. We continue to add to ourselves, take away from ourselves, just trying to find what we do not have. But the same thing happens that happens irreligiously, religiously. If we're just pursuing joy and life and purpose and meaning in our religious activity, then we will never find it there either. It starts with ourselves, and we believe that, man, I've got to do all of these really good things. I've got to live in a certain way. I've got to follow these certain rules. And hopefully at the end, there is a God who will be forgiving and who will be gracious and who will save me because of all that I have done. This is why we look at, oftentimes at the, at the Bible as just a book of laws, a book of rules. But the truth is, it starts with God. 
The gospel starts with God. It's not about self. Irreligiously, I have to look within myself and I have to do good enough, achieve enough, become enough to find joy and meaning and purpose. Religiously, I have to be good enough to please this impersonal God and do all of these things that he tells me to do. And hopefully at the end of the rainbow, there is a God who will love me and I will get lucky and he will save me and I will be with him for all of eternity. But the actual gospel truth doesn't start start with us like irreligion and religion does. It's not about how much we can do, what we have to seek, what we have to accomplish, what we have to achieve. It starts with God, a good God who loves us and shows grace to us and lives for us and dies for us and rises so that we can have life in him and then allows us to walk in the freedom of who we were created to be by his work for us. Here's what we find, that in Christ alone, our being precedes our doing. Everything else, we are living as seekers of life, but in Christ alone, we live as revealers of life that we've been given. We're all trying to become something we are not, but in Christ, we are revealing something he has made us. We're all trying to achieve what we have not accomplished, but in Christ, we can live in his achievement for us because he has accomplished everything we need. Only the gospel truth allows us to begin with God and not self. To live out of an identity, not for an identity. And this is why Paul has continued to point out that our identity determines our activity, that out of our hearts our actions flow, that who we are determines what we do. See, Christianity is not focused on externals, but the heart. And the gospel alone is the only hope that relieves us of feeling duty to become something we are not and gives us a hope in the true reality of what we are in him. It flips upside down when we begin to get the gospel truth down deep into our bones. This is why we preach the gospel every single week here. We need to hear it over and over and over. It is not just for unbelievers. Mistakenly in the church, we believe that a lot. But it is just as valuable for believers. Whether you knew, met him last week or you have known him for 50 years, we need the gospel truth to get deeper and deeper and deeper into us. This is why we say the hard work of Christianity is not doing harder and working to do better so that God will love us, but the hard work of Christianity is resting in the work of Christ and allowing it to transform us to live a life of joy and freedom. The gospel is the only way that you can live and find real freedom. It's the only way that you can live and the duty comes off of you and you are given the grace of God to rest and his goodness and his kingdom. To be able to not focus on the highs and the lows, but through all things have a joy that, that cannot be added to or taken away from. In him alone do we have this reality. And listen, I, I want to tell you a deep truth this morning that every time I've said this in the past, I get looked at like I have six eyes, but this is so true for us and we need to understand it. Christ's love and performance for us motivates our emotion and performance in life, not the other way around. He has done everything. And that means, listen to me, we actually perform better and have greater joy 
and greater meaning and greater purpose in all of life when we focus more on what Christ has done and less on how we perform. Because when I understand his grace, that is where I am transformed out of performing a duty starting with self, and I am brought into the grace of God, given an identity in him to walk out, to reveal in all of life. This is the deep, loving, amazing, great truth of the gospel. It's not about you about him and when we focus our eyes on him even in the valley we can begin to see the blessing in the brokenness of the world we can begin to see purpose in our pain but we have to understand this if we will ever have an understanding of why we might suffer and why God allows that or why God didn't prevent this we have to know this And as I said, Paul points it out with his life. And I need to get really quick into the text, so listen faster. (laughs) Paul points this out with his life. This is what he shows us. He's writing this letter to the church in Colossae, and he is in a time of, of a valley, of suffering. All of his Christian life, he has been. Ever since God brought him to himself and saved him, Paul has been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been imprisoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned. He has been persecuted deeply for what he believes. He's been imprisoned over and over and over, not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing. He has experienced extreme persecution, and he says, I have learned the secret of contentment and joy. And I believe he gives us an example of that, some clues that we need to understand in the valley, that even while he is suffering and he is in pain, He's writing a letter that's full of joy and encouragement. And he's amazed at the goodness of God in the midst of his valley. He sees the blessing because here's what he's discovered and here's what we can discover today. Jesus is everything through anything. He is sufficient and he's the only thing that is sufficient. So let's read this text, see what Paul has to say for us. Chapter one, starting in verse 24. Now I, Paul... Rejoice in my suffering. For your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, after I read that, you see why we're spending the rest of our time right there. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory, his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He says, I am willing to give anything for everyone to understand this reality. That's why we say here at Redemption Hill Church, we exist so that every man, woman, and child might have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel truth. And we are willing to do everything short of sin to see the gospel spread. For I want you to know how great a struggle 
I have for you and for those of Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you from the plaus- with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul has just kind of said everything that I just summarized you over the last few minutes about what the gospel is, where our hope is, where glory is, who is sovereign, who is in control, who is supreme, why is God the most important one, and why is what we do with him the most important decision that we will ever make so that we can know ourselves and we can know what to do. And he says, because of this reality, I rejoice in my suffering. Now, we've got to spend some time there. Because I know, listen, I know that many of you, and, I, and I'm trying to come at this, and I want you to understand that, that when I'm talking about suffering and rejoicing in it, I'm coming from a place, not only is Paul telling us a theological truth that's personal, but this is a theological truth for me that's personal. All of us suffer. I know when I come up here and I talk about rejoicing and suffering, it can seem like, man, that is easy for you. You're standing on a stage. You're supposed to say that. This is what you get paid to do. But I am feeling pain. And I just want you to know, I sympathize with that. I have compassion towards that. I am feeling pain. This world is a place of suffering and sin and brokenness. And I know that many of you are suffering and you're in pain and you're experiencing brokenness. And I want you to know that I love you. And I care for you. And I pray for you. And I desire for God to heal you of that and bring you out of that pain as of yesterday. But I also want you to know that there can be a blessing that is seen in the valley. I want you to know that there is purpose in your pain. And I want you to know that God is good and we can trust him even though we don't understand all that he is doing. He has given us to know him and to trust him and for us to experience his joy that surpasses all understanding in the midst of all that we go through, allowing us to see both tracks at all times and have peace and joy that is beyond the mountaintops and the valleys. I want to help you this morning. So your, your suffering and your pain is not lost on me. And so when Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering, I understand right there, that sounds crazy. It just does. It's one thing to be able to see a blessing in the midst of a suffering. It's another thing to say, I rejoice in my suffering. And so it does. It sounds absolutely insane. It seems counterproductive towards joy, does it not? If I want to experience joy, I want to get out of suffering. And and that just makes sense in our life. It's like Paul is is from an outer-worldly motivation here when he says that. I mean, doesn't he know that if we actually believe in God, put our faith in God, trust in God, work for God, do for God, experience for God, worship God, give glory to God, that life is just supposed to be relatively good, at least as we would define good, which I would argue we don't really understand at all, 
Doesn't he know that if we're worshiping God and giving our life to God, everything's supposed to be like relatively happy as we would define happiness? Which again, I'm not even really convinced I understand what happiness is from a day-to-day basis in circumstances that I face. It reminds me of a story, an old story of, of a man who was in a third world country. He and his son lived there on a small piece of property within a village. And they had a couple of horses that were, they kept in a pen that helped them do all the work on the, in the fields of the farm. And one day, something happened, wind blew, something of that nature, and it opened the gate to where the horses were being kept, and they got away. And the, the neighbor of the, the man came over to his house, and, and he says, wow, how unlucky are you that the wind came and blew the gate open, and now your horses that are your livelihood have run off, and, and you don't know where they are. And the man just replied, what do I know of these things? The next day, he and his son get up, and they go out into the fields. They're searching for their horses, and they come upon their horses, but their horses have found a whole uh, flock of, is that what you call them? Herd. 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 That's the right word. (laughs) If you don't know, just say something. Everybody will correct you. They find a whole herd of horses, and they're able to corral them and bring them into their fences, and now they're going to be able to tame them or break them and sell them and make money off of them. And so the neighbor comes back over and goes, wow, how lucky are you that the wind blew open your gate and opened it up and your horses ran and you went to look for them and look what you found, how lucky are you? And the man responded, what do I know of these things? The next day, his son was out breaking one of the horses and fell off and broke his arm and had to go to the hospital to get his arm repaired. And the neighbor again comes by and you know what he said, oh man, how unlucky are you that you found all of those horses and that your son was trying to break one and now he's broken his arm and now he's spending time in the hospital. And the man says, what do I know of these things? Then the next day, there was this gang that, that came through the villages, and they were, they were recruiting people to be in their gang, and they're going to all of the young men and recruiting them, and they came to this man's house, but his son was gone because he broke his arm, and he's, now he's in the hospital, and he's away from his family, and so the man said, my son isn't here, and they went on to the next house, and of course, the neighbor comes over and says, wow, how lucky are you that your son broke his arm yesterday? And the man says, what do I know of these things? See, we experience in our circumstances these joys and these, these, these fears and these anxieties, and, and so often those emotions are real. They're, we need to listen to our feelings. They're telling us something that we need to discover in a way that we need to lean into truth and ultimately to God, but we don't often know what is good. Not ultimately, we don't often know what we should be afraid of, and oftentimes we find ourselves having fears that end up being joys. And yet we look at God and we go, man, everything should be good as I define it. And everything should be happy as I define it. And, And we look at Paul's life and he says, I have a joy that surpasses my own definition of good and happy. I've learned to be content in all things, joyful in all things. And this is why he says, I rejoice in my suffering. But we tend to think, doesn't suffering uh, just show a deficiency in God? Or deficiency maybe in our faith? These are the ways we tend to go in religion and irreligion. If, if God isn't doing what I want him to and suffering and pain is coming into my life, then he is not good and powerful. There's a deficiency in him. 
If God is not doing what I want and I'm a religious person and I'm coming to church and I'm doing all of these things the right way and, and I feel like life is this two-way street, it's not grace from him in my life and his understanding that's far above mine and I can trust him and know that there's a purpose to it and know that there's goodness in it even if I can't see it or feel it in this time because I'm living in the mountaintop and the valleys and I'm not seeing the blessing in the midst of my pain and my sorrow because I'm not living in the identity that I have been given in Christ. If that's where I am religiously, then I see everything that I'm doing and then I go, man, God should be blessing me as I define blessing. So there must be a deficiency in my faith. I need to work harder. You need to impress him more. It starts with me. And so I need to go and do so that I can achieve and that God will bless me and give to me. And listen to me, many non-believers have been wrongly swayed away from the one thing that can give them life because they see suffering as a deficiency of God. What we're going to see is that it actually points us to him. And a lot of religious people have believed and bought into a false gospel because they're going, it starts with me and I've got to achieve and I've got to do and hopefully there is a leprechaun at the end of the rainbow that will bless me and save me. But that's not what God does and it's not who he is. He saves us and then we get to live in him. And so wrongly, we have both gone in these two directions, irreligiously and religiously, but all of us hate suffering, and this is why we tend towards those beliefs. We hate suffering, and with very good reason. Very good. We should hate suffering. We weren't designed and created to experience suffering. We were created to have relationship with God and community with him, and our own rebellion and sin is what brought suffering and brokenness into the world, and now it affects everything. It affects our own hearts. It affects the hearts of those and minds of those around us. It affects the world that we live in, the things that we believe. And, and, and I think that this even shows us a little bit of just the feeling of that hating, suffering, and pain, the goodness of God. Just really quickly, I, um, a couple of months ago, um, I, I got the news that Pastor Matt's father had died. He called me, and we were on the, the way to my son's baseball game, all driving in our, our minivan, and and so the kids overheard. And my oldest daughter and I were walking to the, she's very uh, just kind of in tune with emotions and feelings. And, and so she could tell I was trying to be a good dad and excited about Judah's baseball game. But like there was just a, a heaviness on me. And she grabs my hand and we're walking towards the, the baseball field. And she just looks up at me and says, Dad, why is life so broken? Why is there so much pain? I said, baby girl, it's because of sin that we suffer. It's because of brokenness, because brought on by our sin rebellion that we suffer and are broken. But the reason that we feel so much pain is because in what we were designed and created to be, there is so much beauty. And we feel pain and sorrow because there's so much opportunity for beauty and grace and amazing and wondrous beauty and love of God. 
And one day he is going to make all things new and restore everything. And right now we live in suffering and pain, but we can see the blessing because of his goodness, of his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection and our understanding of his glory that is coming, which Paul tells us about in this text. And now we can live in the hope of who he is and what we have in him, even in the pain. And begin to understand that there's a point to the brokenness. And this is what Paul is laying out for us. We do hate suffering. We were not created for it. But listen, suffering, I want you to know this morning, it doesn't stump the Bible. It doesn't stump God's word. You can go to him with everything. You can read his word and and look for and discover everything that we need to know of him. And the Bible and the gospel does not avoid suffering and pain. And we don't have a, a gotcha when we bring suffering and pain to God. He faces it head on. And this morning, I don't have time to, to kind of give this whole kind of analysis of suffering and why, this big question we always ask of why suffering is this. Paul is going to give one And we'll see that at the very end of our time together, but we don't have time to really investigate that this morning. But we can see and understand that even though we don't understand all of God and why he allows and does things, we can trust him with all of life. And the Bible does address honestly. It's the most honest book ever written. And it addresses honestly the suffering that we face. And I want to just give you a really quick rundown of the suffering that the Bible actually addresses and talks about. We won't have time to get into it all, but as I see it, there are 10 forms of suffering that the Bible addresses directly. If you can think of another one, I would love to hear about it. And these are just the ones that I could find and think through, Um, but, but maybe there are more and I've missed some. But here they are. One is rival suffering. We have opposing identities in life because when we are finding ourselves in self and the things of the world, then we will identify ourselves and find value and worth in things that are created, the gift rather than the giver. And when we do that, we will cause friction between identities and values and worse. We see this all throughout our culture today. And the reason for the disunity that we have and the suffering that we face because we find our identities in different things in our culture is because foundationally we're finding our identity and worth in the wrong things. We can't see the beauty of uh, unity and diversity because we're not foundationally finding our identity in Christ. We're finding it in the diversity itself. So we have arrival suffering, opposing identities. Number two, victim suffering. This is when somebody does something to you that was not your fault. Three, collective suffering. There are things that happen. 9-11 is a great example of this that happened to a culture collectively, and we suffer together whether we are affected or not. Four, disciplinary suffering. This is like a parent to a child. Five, persecution, suffering, facing persecution and suffering for what you believe and what you teach and what you reveal with your life. Six, empathetic suffering. This is when you love someone so much that when they hurt, you hurt. When they have pain, you have pain. When they suffer, you suffer with them. Providential suffering is number seven. Think of the life of Joseph, where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and left to die, but God uses what was painful and what was suffering in his life to bring him to a point of second in command over all of Egypt and to save the people of God. 
Verse 8, punish, or eight punishing suffering. This is justice that is brought forth. Nine, consequential suffering. This is when I do something and I suffer the consequences of my decision. And number 10, apocalyptic suffering. As we get closer to Christ's return, we are told that there will be war and there will be conflict that is on the rise. And, and here's what I need you to know through all of that, because we don't have time to really walk through it all and the why behind what God allows and does. I do want us to know this. Suffering exists in a fallen world. We all face it. We don't always know what kind of suffering we are in. We don't always know why we are in that kind of suffering. But here's what Paul tells us that is vitally important. All these forms of suffering have two realities. They have a purpose. I shared this story not long ago, um, but there was this young girl, ABC did a news article on it, this young girl that had CIPA, a very rare disease where you don't feel pain. And ABC put this story out there, and the headline was this, the one thing that we all try and avoid might be the one thing that saves us all pain. And the parents were telling this story of how because their daughter doesn't uh, feel pain, the smallest little cut can turn into affection, an infection that could cost her her life, or the smallest little thing gone unnoticed could cause her disability for the rest of her life. And so they constantly had to be watching her because she didn't have warning signs that something was wrong. And in a broken, fallen, sinful world where our hearts and minds are rebellious, suffering tells us, the pain shows us that something is wrong. We need a savior. There at a very base level is a purpose to all of our pain and our suffering. It shows us that we need God. It shows us what to lean into. It demonstrates that we need a savior and it points us towards the one who can save. It draws us unto him. This is one purpose of suffering. And secondly, we need to know that all of these types of suffering, though we might not be able to, to kind of put a thumb on which one we are facing in any given moment or why we are going through it at any given moment on a, on, a, on a real deep level, we do need to know that all suffering, one, points us to the reality of a need for a Savior, and all suffering is testimonial suffering. It all points to what we see our Savior as. The way that we act in suffering, the way that we pursue uh, what might save us, that is what reveals to ourselves and what we lean into more, what we worship and what we're viewing for salvation and joy. And if it is creation or created things, then it will lead to deeper and more suffering and ultimate destruction. But only in Christ do we have a purpose in our suffering, pointing us towards the reality of our need for him and a purpose in our suffering that reveals and, and gives testimony to the reality that he is where we find joy and not in the circumstances of the mountaintop or in the valley. This is what Paul's life begins to show us, that all suffering has a purpose. We even see this in the life of Christ, do we not? God himself comes down and is willing to live for us. That should have been suffering and pain enough for the God who is perfect and has all things and created all things, sustains all things, and he actually came down to live a life like we live, not possessing earthly possessions, not having earthly things. Then he goes to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. He suffers to give testimony to the reality that our pain needs a savior. 
And he gives testimony to the fact that he has come to save us. We see this in his suffering for us, but I want to show just another little nugget of truth that I think is so beautiful that we often don't see, and it's in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus actually calls Paul to himself. If you remember, uh, Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus with Paul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this is after Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. He's already ascended back into his rightful place in heaven. This is after he has done all of that. And so here's what I want us to see from that. We see that in some way, when we suffer as believers, Christ feels our suffering even now. Not only was he willing to come and suffer once and for all for our sin, to give testimony that we need a Savior and he is the Savior, but even now, because of his love for us, he suffers with us in some way when we suffer and feel pain, he feels pain. And, and how much more should, can we know that there is purpose, whether we know why or not, that there is purpose in our suffering that is beyond us? Because what do we know of such things if the God who created us and sustains all of life is willing to suffer with us? What does that say of the purpose that there might be in our pain? Jesus suffers with us. He is in the suffering with us. He has compassion on us. Here's the point that I want to comfort us with this morning. I know some of you are in a valley, and I want you to know that there is purpose in what you are facing. It is not futile. It's not wasted. And yes, we want to get out of it as quickly as we possibly can, but we also want to be able to see the blessing in the midst of the valley, to see the purpose of what God is doing, to know that he is in the pain and suffering with us, to know that he is using it to reveal himself, not only to us that we might grow deeper and closer to him, but that we might see others in their pain and reveal to them the sufficiency of Christ, that we have a joy that doesn't come in our circumstances, but in the God who sustains all things. We may not understand the why of suffering, but we can know that it has purpose. Listen, I know that that doesn't make the pain easier, but it does mean that it's not pointless. And the track of his kingdom is the greatest blessing in the valley, and we are able to see the joy we have in him, and from the mountaintop, see what is taking place in the valley and bring truth to those who are hurting. So let's catch this this morning. As a result, we can look at our suffering, and we can get beyond the unhelpful question so often of why. And listen, it's fine if you ask God why. It's fine if you go to him with your struggle, your frustrations, and your pains, and, and find joy in the midst of all of that. I'm, I'm sure that as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing through tears because he's in prison, and he's writing about joy, and so he's probably smiling. There is all of this happening in his life, and so we can ask the question, why, God? Why would you allow this? Why would you not, not keep this from me or keep me from this one that I love? And we can go to him with that, but listen, we can get beyond that question question. When we understand that God is at work in the midst of it, this is what we see and what Paul is, is pointing out to us that we can get beyond that and we can look to God. We can grow in him and reveal him. And here's what we can do in him. We can stop asking the question why and we can begin to ask the question how. God, how would you want to use this suffering in my life? 
For a long time, I was stuck in a valley with a disease that will never go away from my body. And all that I could see was the valley that I was in. And it frustrated me. And it, and it got into my relationships. And it got into my work. And it got into everything that I did. But then God began to reveal to me that there is purpose and there is a testimony through it. And I could get past the question of why and get into the question of how. God, how might you use this in my life to grow in you? It also allows us to get past the question of why and get to the question of who. God, who might you be wanting me to give testimony to your goodness and your joy where I live and where I work and where I play? How are you growing me in the midst of this that I might lean more on the joy that is eternal and not circumstantial? And who might want you to give testimony to in my life that you are sufficient in all things and it's not about the highs and the lows, but it's about you because you are everything through anything. And this is where joy is found. That's why Paul says, I believe this with all my heart, because he gets this and he got past the why and to the who and the how and the purpose behind it. And he can see the blessing in the valley. He goes, I rejoice in my suffering. Not that I'm not full of tears, not that I'm not hurting, not that I don't need a shoulder to cry on, not that I don't have to work through it, not that it's not painful, not that it's not going to be a long time before I can move past it and, and lean into Jesus more and more until he reveals himself to a point where I see his goodness over my hurting. But in the midst of it, I can rejoice because my rejoicing was never in the mountaintop. It was never in the gift. It's always in the giver. This is what Paul shows us. That we can have purpose and there is meaning and there is a testimony. Now really quickly, because I know that I've already gone over my time and, and so I want to I just touch on this, this second thing that Paul says that's a big thing and I just want us to see it. We've already described it, so this will be really quick. But he says, I'm able to rejoice in my suffering, for I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the family of God, the church. Now, that seems completely contradictory if we haven't just gone over everything that we've just gone over. So we know that Paul's not saying what Christ did was not sufficient for us to have salvation, life, and eternity. Paul or us, we're not adding to what God did. God, Jesus hung on a cross and he said, it is finished. I have done everything for you to receive my grace and salvation in me and in me alone. So what is Paul saying? He says, I'm revealing the full work of Christ, the mystery that has been revealed, which he says is Christ, his work. Verses 26 and chapter 2, verse 2. But all people have not seen, not been revealed to the mystery who is Christ, the beauty that is the gospel truth, the sufficiency of all that he has done. In other words, the application of Christ's work to those who do not know him yet has not been completed. So what is lacking in Christ's affliction is not his work for us. It was all sufficient, but it is the mission of completing the work of making his truth known. And God uses the church to put it on display. 
So as we said, suffering has both an internal and external purpose in a fallen world. We grow deeper, but we give testimony. And, and Paul's saying, as Christ's death on the cross and his suffering brought salvation to me, so our suffering in him reveals his suffering for us to the world. When we reveal that our joy is in him and not in our valleys and our mountaintops, it is revealing the cross of Christ and people will see that he is all they need. Jesus is everything and anything. This is what he's saying is lacking, not Christ's work. One theologian said, Paul was willing to embrace the cross of Christ so that others may enjoy the Christ of the cross. What a great purpose for us to live in. That we can live, he says at the end of this text, in the future glory that we have in Christ. That we keep our eyes on him, and this is what causes us to walk and live in freedom. Because we know one day he's going to make all things new. All, tear will, all tears will be wiped away. Everything that is broken will be redeemed. All because of who God is, and we have new life in him. His glory is coming. Live in that reality now. This is why Paul says he can rejoice. And I want to just, in closing, really quickly, I'm just going to list them off. I'm not going to go into detail. But in chapter 2, Paul gives us three quick points that I think he wants to give us. These are the action points. What do I do to grow in this? How do I, how do I grow in this reality? How do I get from where I am to, to being able to see the blessing in the valley, to give testimony through my life, to have a joy that surpasses all circumstances? Here's what he says. Three action questions I'll ask you. Because as your body needs air and water, food to survive, and we would say hope, your soul needs God's word, prayer, and community to survive. So let me ask you these things. What are you feeding your soul? What are you feeding your soul? What are you letting your eyes see? What are you taking in? What are you believing? The second question is, who are you bearing your soul to? What is training your soul? What is teaching your soul? What is training your mind? What is teaching your mind? And then what are you bearing your soul and your mind to? And who are you revealing that truth to? Who are you giving testimony to in your life? See, Paul says, first, I want you to learn. I want you to be in God's word. I want you to see his word. I want you to believe his word. I want you to wrestle with his word. I want you to struggle through his word. I don't want you to quit when you don't understand it because what he's saying is hard. I don't want you to quit because you don't agree with it. Because, it, listen, it makes total sense that if God wrote a book, we wouldn't agree with it all. If you agree with everything first time you read it, God's word, and you just agree with all of it, you are not reading it right. We need to wrestle with it. And there are things when you read God's word where you're going to have to surrender yourself and go, God knows truth. He is truth. He is love. He is good. I am just man. I am not. And so I need to change my belief because this is what God says. But you need to learn his word. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, we have Bible reading plans for you in the lobby. Pick one up, learn his word, lean into his truth. Secondly, he says, we need to be knit together in love. He says, I love your faith for God and your love for one another. This is what we want our church to be known for. 
The church is known for lots of things, things that we're against and programs that we have. But I don't know very many churches who even put it in their, their kind of advertising that we are a church that wants to be known for faith and love. But this is what it's all about. That we would have our faith deeply rooted in God and that we would love one another. And for that, we must know one another. You can only be loved to the extent that you are known. And what happens in the, the world that we live in is that we typically have to choose between being known and being loved because if someone sees all of us, they will not love us. And so we have to hide self to feel loved, but it's not true love. Only in God can you be fully known and fully loved. And in his community, you can begin to work towards that kind of love together. So you need to be in a gospel community. You need to find community with the people of God. And finally, use your life as a witness to Christ's sufficiency. Who do you need to share him with? What is the way you suffer revealing about your life and what you worship? What are we giving testimony to? John Piper said this, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, but your joy will be full.